our studio crew went out on the streets again, find out what New Yorkers think about 666 and if they're worried about it. What's the meaning of 666? You can listen and hear what some of the responses are. Yeah, that refers to the Emperor Nero, and uh, it was uh, used by the early Christians to to uh, talk about uh, evil and Satan, but actually more evil than a specific person. I don't believe that there's any uh, thing to be held in the 666 thing, or the mark of the beast. Uh, I just don't believe it. I mean, I believe in the devil, but uh, signs and stuff like that, I don't know. It's a little far-fetched for me. So they're just numbers. Just like 2,000. No big deal. No, not with me. But if, you know, God forbid anything, you know, then, then we have to, you know, cross that bridge. But no, 666 is just a number. That's 666, I don't know. It's, uh, I think it's just something people build up. 666666 and all this, you know. And listen, people are looking for excitement. Especially in New York. If you have something exciting, <laughs> people are ready to listen. Uh, I, obviously something about Satan, I guess, uh, maybe the end of the world. Uh, but I think uh, the number is really more of a human thing, you know, a man-made thing rather than anything religious. Well, there you have it. We couldn't find anybody on the street who took it seriously. But the Bible deals with it in a very serious manner. Matter of fact, before we enter into our study tonight, I think it would be a good idea for us to bow our heads together and to pray in a special sense for the Holy Spirit to be with us and to avoid any distractions. Father in heaven, as we now focus our attention on some of these prophecies, you've promised a blessing on those who read, hear, and keep the words of Revelation. I pray, Lord, that those who are gathered here, those that are watching, will understand the current importance of these messages and these prophecies. Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd like to issue a disclaimer. You know, sometimes on the news, before they show something that's uh, especially graphic or frightening, the newscaster will say, this is not for sensitive viewers. What we are going to study tonight is a very serious subject. Those of you who are watching, who are listening, if you have not already made a commitment to believe God's word, to go by God's word, to give the Lord your heart, these messages could shock you, they may disturb or upset you, and you are free to excuse yourself and we will not hold it against you. I would like those who remain to be the ones who are committed to find out what does the Bible really say. If you've come in with preconceived ideas and you say, I'm going to believe what I want to believe, I don't want to know what the Bible really teaches, then you may not appreciate this presentation. And I mean what I'm saying. We're going to deal with some difficult subjects. Well, let's start with our amazing fact. The Colossus of Rhodes. You know, it was interesting. I went to the Empire State Building the other day. Hadn't been there since I was a kid. And I discovered one thing. You can get to the 80th floor of the Empire State Building quicker than you can get to the 7th floor of the apartment where I'm standing. Or we're staying. And uh, the bottom of the Empire State Building, they've got the seven wonders of the world. You know, they've got the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and they've got the Lighthouse of Alexandria and, and uh, some of the other wonders of the ancient world. And then they've got the Empire State Building is the eighth wonder of the world. They've got this beautiful mural. But one of them is the Colossus of Rhodes. It was built there by the Greek harbor of Rhodes about 280 B.C., about 100 feet tall. And it was actually a bronze 
uh, statue of immense proportions. As a matter of fact, that's where we get the word colossal because it was so enormous. The ancient Greeks and Romans called it one of the seven wonders of the then ancient world. It was destroyed in an earthquake only a few years after it had been created. But the word colossal, Colosseum, then became synonymous with something that was of unbelievable proportions. They say that uh, ships would enter the harbor by sailing under this enormous statue. You know, there's another statue in the Bible that was even more colossal. It wasn't quite as tall unless you go along with what the pier or the pedestal size must have been. Now, let's go back to our lesson. We're studying tonight, bowing to Babylon. This is a very important lesson that helps identify the first beast in Revelation chapter 13. A little review, you remember in our opening presentation, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in that dream was a great image. And that image outlined the history and the kingdoms of the world, made up of several minerals, metals. The head was made of what? Gold. And the chest was silver. And the belly and thighs were of bronze. And the legs were iron. The feet were a combination of iron and miry clay. And then a stone came and smashed the whole idol to smithereens. And it was blown away and the stone fills the whole earth. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was impressed when Daniel interpreted the dream. And he said, you are the head of gold. And that really appealed to his ego. He was the top, the most valuable mineral. But he wasn't happy with what Daniel said next. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't want there to be another kingdom. He wanted the kingdom of Babylon to last forever. He thought, now if that head of gold represents Babylon, maybe I can confound the prophecy. Maybe I can alter the prediction of God. If I make a statue like the one I saw in my dream, but make the whole thing, make this colossal statue, all of gold. And he did just that. He made this enormous idol. The Bible says it was 60 cubits by 6 cubits. 6-6. Six, six. Wish there was one more in there somewhere. That adds up to 90 feet by 9 feet wide gold. And we don't know if it was on a pedestal. It would have been even taller than the Colossus of Rhodes. And he was trying to weld his empire together. Keep in mind, Babylon stretched into Egypt, Palestine, uh, Persia, parts of Asia Minor, all these different cultures and languages. And when you cannot unite people through common culture and race and language, you can often do it through common religion. That's why King Darius made a law that everybody was to worship him, trying to weld the kingdom together through common worship. The devil is going to try to do the same thing in the last days. This is what Nebuchadnezzar was after. He wanted his empire and his dynasty to last forever. And he made a law. That everybody, when they heard the sound of the musicians and they reached their crescendo, they would signal the people to fall down and worship this image. And they got all the dignitaries from all over the Babylonian Empire. Anybody who was anybody was there. And they were dressed in their royal apparel. The image was probably veiled with some sheet or tarp. And just as the sun came up, the musicians began to play, and when they reached this apex, this crescendo, they dropped the curtain, and there, glowing in the rising sun, was this burnished gold image. And everything about the occasion was calculated to inspire you to fall down and worship. It was so beautiful. It attracted every one of your emotions and your senses. And the threat also, uh, the, the law also had a little 
caveat. It said, and by the way, whoever does not fall down and worship, the same hour is going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. So they were all highly motivated to worship this new God. But there were three who refused to bow down. Three Hebrews. Their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when everybody bowed down, they knew it would cost them their lives. They stood tall. Because, here's the issue, friends. Do not miss this. If you miss everything else in the lesson, this is the issue. The commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, clearly said, you shall not bow down and worship graven images. And they had to make a choice whether to obey the laws of the government, the laws of man, or the laws of God. They decided to seek first God and His kingdom and His righteousness. And they did it to the point where they put their lives on the line. This is the same thing that's going to happen in the last days. The devil tells us, that he wants us to break God's commandments because sin is the transgression of God's law. That's why there in Daniel chapter 5, King Darius, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 6, King Darius made this law that everybody had to pray to him. Daniel had to decide, do I break the first commandment or do I obey God and go to the lion's den? Daniel put the commandments of God first and God honored him. Amen. And he did the same for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Pretty soon they were brought before the king. King was infuriated. He said, what's the matter with you? Are you deaf? You must be crazy. Didn't you hear what I said? You're going to die if you don't bow down. Now, I know who you are. You're bright and promising young men. You've got great potential. You are Daniel's friends. If you read Daniel chapter 1, they passed his exam with flying colors. Ten times wiser than all his other wise men. I don't want to lose you. I'll give you another chance. When you hear the music, you better bow down because who is it that's going to deliver you? He knew they served the God Jehovah. He said, I'll give you another chance, and if you don't, you're in big trouble. They said, King, our God who we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he does not deliver us, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. What bold audacity to say to this monarch, first of all, they wrecked his party, and then say that no matter what he does, they are not going to bow down, even if they die. You know, this is the kind of faith every Christian has. Amen. We know God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve Amen. the enemy. I've got a friend who is struggling with terminal cancer. And he said, Doug, if God wants to, he can heal me. But even if he doesn't heal me, I'm still going to trust him. I'm still going to obey him. That's what it means to put your life on the line with God. Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. He commanded his soldiers to pile the fuel into the furnace nearby where they had forged this gold statue. God had heated up seven times hotter than it was supposed to be heated. So much so that it was, waves of heat were pulsating out. He commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be bound by the strongest men in his army. They handled them roughly and tied them right up in their clothes, just wound them up like mummies. And as they charged towards the mouth of the furnace to throw them in, the heat was so intense that it melted the soldiers that threw them in. Those soldiers died obeying the king. They were sincere, but they died obeying the wrong one. Some people don't think the fire was hot enough. It says, these men were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. But then something unusual happened. Nebuchadnezzar said to his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? His counselor said, that's so, O king. He said, lo, I see four men loose, walking. That means the only thing burnt was the ropes that bound them. And if you follow Jesus, he'll set you free. Amen. They're walking loose in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt. They're not hurt. 
You might go through fiery trials if you obey the Lord, but He will go with you because He said the form of the fourth is one like unto the Son of God. God Himself, God the Son, went and met them and delivered them. Now, you may go through fiery trials, but God will stand up for you. You know, the Lord did through those three Hebrews there in captivity in Babylon what He had been striving to do through the whole Jewish nation for hundreds of years. He got some people to stand up for Him. The Lord is looking for people who will not bow down with everybody else. They are willing to do His will. They're willing to obey the law of God instead of the law of man. The Bible is very clear. Romans tells us, you are the servants of the one whom you obey. And these people who say that God's done away with His law and the commandments don't matter anymore, well, who are they obeying? What are they obeying? God's law is still intact, all Ten Commandments, including the Fourth. Amen? Amen. Now, we're going to go to our lesson, but before we do, I want to go to the Bible. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. And I'll give you the page number here in just a minute. That's 1813 in the Seminar Bibles. Revelation, chapter 13. Now, you've heard about the mark of the beast. Tomorrow night, we're going to talk a little bit about the mark. Tonight, we're going to talk first about the beast, except that is a misnomer. Revelation 13 does not talk about the beast. Revelation 13 talks about the beasts, plural. There are two of them. Chapter 13, verse 1. And I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. And the beast that I saw was like unto a leopard. And his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and seat and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as it was wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. That's the first beast. You jump to verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. First beast comes up out of the sea. Another beast comes up out of the earth. And it had two horns like a lamb, and it spake as a dragon, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. Now, I'm going to stop right there, and I may shock you, but I'm going to tell you right off what these beasts represent. These beasts represent powers and religions. I'll explain. The first beast, I believe, initially represented Rome, and then represented the Roman Catholic Church. The second beast represents the United States, and then Protestants and Charismatics in the United States. Now, that pretty well encompasses everybody in this room, doesn't it? I am an American, and I'm technically a Protestant. Now, please do not get upset, but just use your head, okay? The Bible says, come now, let us reason together. It should stand to reason to you that the United States, which is, you know, the uncontended world power in the last days, the United Nations is right here in our city, that it would be mentioned in prophecy in the last days. And I will show you in a future lesson about the second beast. We have a lesson that deals with the role the United States is going to play in final prophecy. You're going to be amazed and you're going to believe it when you hear it. It shall also stand to reason to you that Rome would be in prophecy and the Roman Catholic Church in particular. It was basically the primary religion and a religion and a government for over a thousand years. So I hope you're not shocked that these things are in prophecy. Let me also say very clearly right here, I believe there are going to be countless 
Protestants and Catholics in the kingdom. Amen? I'm not talking about people. I believe God has His loving, Spirit-filled people in many different persuasions. I said that right from the start. I'm not of the mindset that you've got to be part of a certain club or you're automatically disqualified. The Lord judges us based on the light that we have. And we've shown you a number of scriptures on that. So there are many people in these different persuasions. I believe they're good, godly people. But there are unbiblical teachings. And these powers are going to join together to form the final union, the final power that will persecute God's people. Now let's see. We're going to start by looking at the first beast and find out if we can clearly identify using the Bible and history who it is. Question number one. How does our story in Daniel 3 relate to Revelation? Well, we've already seen Revelation 13, verse 15. As many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now, you notice in our story, it told us how the Babylonian king, this powerful world leader, he establishes a counterfeit image and he compelled worship contrary to God's command. The issue in the last days is also going to be who will we obey? Remember what Peter said to the Sanhedrin? We ought to obey God rather than men. That's the issue. Who are we going to obey? Question number two. What are the three angel messages of Revelation 14? Now let me tell you why these three angels' messages are significant. Because they go to all the world just before Christ comes, which is what's happening now. Let's identify them. First angel's message is Revelation 14.7. says, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of his judgment is come. Wait a second. Judgment is come? Are you aware that there's an aspect of judgment that takes place before Jesus comes? You sort of already knew that. When Christ comes, does everybody get the reward? So does it make sense to you some sort of judgment takes place before he comes? We'll explain that later, but I'm hoping that's not a shock to you. And worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Notice in the first angel's message, it's calling people to return to the worship of the one who created. So, you know, in the Sabbath commandment, you've got the very same wording you have in Revelation. In six days the Lord made the heaven, the sea, the fountains of waters, the heaven and the sea and the earth. The Bible is telling us to remember the creator. Every Sabbath day, we're acknowledging in six days God made the world, the seventh day he rested. It's the birthday of the world, you might say. Second angel's message, Revelation 14, verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We'll talk more about who Babylon is. But one of the messages is to identify Babylon. We have a lesson coming on that. Revelation 14, 9 and 10. If any man worships the beast and his image and receives his mark in his forehead or his hand, the same will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. The most fearful curse is pronounced in Revelation 14 on those who receive the mark of the beast. We need to understand what that is. Amen. We don't want to get that curse. And so we need to identify what is the beast and then what is the mark of the beast. And it may surprise many of you as we proceed. After these three angel messages go to the world, then the Bible says, I beheld and one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. These messages go to the world, then Jesus comes. Do you remember reading in Matthew 24? 
the gospel of this kingdom will go in all the world for a witness unto all nations, then the end will come. Friends, these three angel messages are going October 30, right now, to the whole world. They're going by satellite. You know, we got an email from the North Pole. Somebody stationed at the North Pole is watching on the internet. We got emails down there from Tanzania, Tasmania. I tried to combine New Zealand and Tasmania. Sorry, friends. New Zealand and Tasmania. Yeah, way down south there. From one pole to the other, this message is going via satellite around the planet right now. And so these messages are going to the world. You know that amazing facts, we get responses from people in Kuwait from our website. People who are forbidden to study the Christian religion in that country are secretly going through our Bible course on the internet because it's the world wide web. So right now because of this technology that the devil sometimes uses, God is using the same technology to take the message to the whole world and then the promise is the end will come. This is the generation, friends. I hope that those of you who are here tonight will continue coming because it gets better and better from here on out. All right, question number three. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecies? Daniel chapter 7, verse 17. These great beasts, oh, come on now, say them with me. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings. You can also read in Daniel chapter 7, 23. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. And then he gets more specific in Daniel chapter 8 regarding these beasts. He said the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the big horn between his eyes, the first one was Alexander Great. That horn breaks off. Four horns come out. Just like when Alexander died, his kingdom was divided among his four generals. These beasts represent kingdoms and powers. So sometimes when we talk about the mark of the beast, people think we're calling this power a monster. No, the beasts are creatures, and the characteristics of the creatures help us identify their strengths and weaknesses. And that's all this is talking about. So when I say that the first beast is the Roman Catholic Church, I'm not calling them a monster any more than I'm telling you the United States, the second beast, is a monster. I'm telling you that they fit a place in prophecy just as surely as Alexander did and Babylon did. We're going to talk about that. So keep in mind, I went to Catholic school. I'm hoping I'm not offending anybody. But let's look at all the evidence. Isn't that what the Bible says? Search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. We do this in the United States. When we think about the American Eagle, what country do we think of? Quick, quick. And the Russian bear represents... Am I going too fast? So we still do this today where these animals represent different nations. Okay? We're not trying to be derogatory. This is what they did in Bible times. Question number four. How does the Bible identify the first beast here in Revelation? Revelation 13:1. I stood upon the sand of the sea. I want you to notice that, the water. And I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. Now you remember in the image of Daniel, there were ten toes. Ten divisions, the iron and the clay. The iron and the clay was the Roman Empire, ruled by Caesars, that's the iron, mixed with clay. That's what man was made out of, that's religion. And that's what you've got down in the feet. You've got the combination of the Roman power mingled in with the religious power, which is what ruled for over a thousand years, and we'll talk about that. Now you have here these beasts that represent the different powers. 
You notice that in Revelation it says it starts out like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. When you go to Daniel chapter 7, it says like a lion, like a leopard, I'm sorry, like a lion, like a bear, and like a leopard. It's going the opposite direction. When Daniel was prophesying the lion, that's Babylon, the bear, Medo-Persia, the leopard, that's Greece. Daniel was looking forward. John now is looking back on those empires. He says the very same animals in reverse of Daniel. Isn't it perfect how God's word works? Amen. All right, now we're going to look at 10 identifying characteristics you find in the Bible to know what is the beast of Revelation chapter 13, the first beast. Let's take a look at them briefly. First of all, rises up out of the sea. Secondly, receives its power, seat, and authority from the dragon. Third, becomes a worldwide power. Fourth, it's guilty of blasphemy. Fifth, it rules for 42 prophetic months. Sixth, it receives a deadly wound that then miraculously heals. Seven, it's a religious power that receives worship. Eight, it persecutes God's saints. Nine, it has this mysterious number, 666. And ten, it is led by a supreme man, one individual. Okay, so here are some of the identifying characteristics. If I should suddenly announce that I've got a mystery guest in the audience tonight, and I want you to guess who it is, you wouldn't have a clue. But if I started giving you indicators, and I said, all right, they're wearing red. Well, that starts to narrow it down, doesn't it? And people are looking around for anyone wearing red right now. <laughs> I'm just making this up. Don't take me so serious. And then I said, and they got one glass eye. Well, then it becomes even, you know, I got a patch over there. The more indicators I give you, the easier it gets to identify who that person is. And if I give you 10 obvious indicators, well, you know without a doubt, right? It's that much evidence. We're going to look at the evidence point by point. Question number five. This beast arises from the sea. What does the sea or water symbolize in prophecy? Do we need to make a spiritual guess or does the Bible tell us how to interpret prophecy? The symbols are explained in the Bible. It says the waters which thou sawest are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The papacy or the Catholic Church, it arose from existing centers of population. It did not come up in some obscure corner of the globe. Matter of fact, it came up right in the very location that was the seat of government for the then existing empire of Rome. So it fits the first criteria. It came up among the waters, multitudes of peoples, nations, and tongues, right in the middle. Question number six, who gives the beast its power and position? Remember, we learned one characteristic. It receives its power and seat from the dragon. Revelation 13, 2, and the? Dragon. Who's the dragon? Well, the dragon is the devil, but you read Revelation 12, and the dragon is the devil first working through Rome. I'll get to that in a moment. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, those of you who know a little about history, let me stop right here and explain something. Let me catch my breath. I'm getting so excited, I'm afraid I'm going to hyperventilate. It's a very important subject. I've got so much to carry. And I have this menacing clock down here that's telling me how much time. I wish, like Joshua, I could pray that the clock would stand still. And that your hearing would go on. But I can't do that right now. Don't have enough faith. Anyway, because Revelation is the last book in the Bible, to see the fulfillment of Revelation, obviously we need to go forward into history. Does that make sense to you? 
So you're going to notice that we are looking at some of the historical records to see the fulfillment of these last prophecies in Revelation. You have to do that. You can't go back in history to see future predictions. And so I want to explain none of the quotes or the references that you're seeing are from me or from my church. They're all from authentic historical sources or they're from the papacy themselves. We're trying to be as fair as possible. You know, in Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is the Roman power or the devil operating through the Roman power to eat the man-child as soon as he's born. Remember, the Roman soldiers went to Bethlehem to kill baby Jesus. Herod wanted to destroy him, a Roman king. He was a vassal under Rome. But the devil works through. It's the dragon working through these governments. So the dragon giving the seat is the devil working through Rome, giving its office to the beast, its authority. Now, this is what history tells us happened. And you'll find that it fits the first point here. The dragon gave its power, seat, and authority to the papacy. Let's review a little history quickly. You know that immediately after the time of Christ, there was a great persecution among the Christians. Then gradually, things began to change politically. Rome began to disintegrate because the barbarians and the Huns and everybody was attacking. Constantine even moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople. And he was the first emperor who legalized the Christian religion. He said, they're not hurting anybody and we're tearing the kingdom apart fighting Christians when the real enemies out there, these Germanic tribes are attacking us from the north. So he legalized Christianity and it became very in vogue because Constantine said, a matter of fact, I've been converted. He claimed to have a vision where he was to conquer under the sign of the cross. And to show how sincere he was, he ordered his whole army to march through the Tiber River. And he said, guess what? You've all been baptized. You're Christians now. Well, that caused all kinds of problems because all of these Roman pagan soldiers marched through the river. And then they said, now you're Christians. They brought all their paganism into the church. And it's never completely come out. And so you've got the commingling of these two religions. So he legalized Christianity. And he then made it acceptable. He made it popular and prominent. You can read in the history records what then happened. It tells us the transfer of the emperor's residence to Constantinople was a sad blow to the prestige of Rome. And at the time, one might have predicted her speedy decline. But the development of the church and the growing authority of the bishop of Rome or the pope gave her a new lease on life and made her again the capital. This time, the religious capital of the civilized world. So you see, the Catholic Church quite literally received its authority, its seat, and its position, its power from Rome, from that first beast there. The beast receives its authority and its seat from Rome. You could also read in the history books, the succession of the Caesars, uh, to the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the Pontus, or the popes in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the Pontiff, to the Pope. And it didn't happen exactly right then with um, Constantine. It became more official a couple of hundred years later. But basically, the power of the church began to grow there in Rome. Number seven, how far-reaching is the influence of the beast? Well, the Bible tells us, and all the world wondered after the beast. You know what the word Catholic means? Catholic means universal. And it was to be a universal worldwide power. And I don't think anybody is going to contest that. All authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's a universal power and it meets that criteria. Need to give you a little more history now. 
as Christianity became the government religion, the religious leaders, in order to sort of centralize control, discovered that it wasn't safe to allow the people to read the Bible in their own language. They said, you're not educated, you're ignorant, and we think that the Bible should be kept in the sacred language of the empire. Well, you'd think that'd be Hebrew or at least Greek language of the New Testament, but they said it was Latin. Jesus didn't speak Latin. Or the apostles, they spoke Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. And so they then took the Bibles out of the hands of the people. Matter of fact, I'm going to read you a quote that may shock some of you. And we've got the references for these things. If you'd like to, where'd my paper go? I thought I had, here it is. Okay, I've got it. Somebody must have been praying. In the book, Index of Forbidden Books of Pope Pius IV, he says this, The Bible in the vernacular of the people, permitted generally without discrimination, will cause more damage than advantage because of the boldness of man. The judgment of the bishops and inquisitors is to serve as guides in this matter. If someone was found in possession of one of these Bibles, you know what that means? A Bible in the language the common people could read? They said, that's not safe. We'll read it. We'll tell you what it says. Because the people were saying, wait a second. The government church is teaching things that aren't in the Bible. And they said, be quiet. We're in charge. And there were a lot of very sincere people that lost their lives because they protested against what was happening here. But they took the Bibles out of the hands of the people. If someone was found in possession of one of these Bibles, this is from their own writing, Without written permission from a priest or inquisitor, their sins cannot be forgiven unless they turn the manuscripts in and confess. You know why the Dark Ages are called the Dark Ages? Because thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And they took the Bibles away from the people. And that's one way that they entered into the Dark Ages. Question number eight. What comes out of the mouth of the beast? It tells you there... And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. Now, we need to find out what is blasphemy. There's another scripture here that you can read in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, speaking of the Antichrist power, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or his worship, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, friends, some people think that uh, they're going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. I don't believe that. I think that this, and this is the only prophecy they use for that. Don't you remember where Paul says, what don't you know that ye collectively are the temple of God? And so this power sitting over the temple of God doesn't mean he's sitting in a literal marble building somewhere calling himself God. It means he's sitting over the people of God, putting himself in the position of God. That's one of the definitions of blasphemy. Let's let the Bible define blasphemy for us. You remember when the Jews wanted to stone him? And the Jews answered and said to Jesus, For a good work we do not stone you, but for what? Blasphemy. For blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself God. When a man puts himself in the place of God, that's a Bible definition for blasphemy. This is from Pope Leo XIII. This is what the Pope says. And incidentally, the Popes used to claim infallibility. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. I think that's a very arrogant thing for a human mortal to say, um, with all due respect. Now, there are some other definitions for blasphemy you find in the Bible. Remember, the scribes again wanted to stone Christ. And the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, 
for a man, biblically, to claim the right to be able to forgive sins is called blasphemy. And they were right about that. They were wrong because Christ was God, God the Son, and he had the right to forgive sin. Let's find out if the Catholic Church meets this definition that we've looked at. God himself, this is from their writings, God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priests and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest proceeds and God subscribes to it. In other words, the priest will decide who is forgiven and God must go along with that. I respectfully disagree. Biblically, these are definitions for blasphemy. Putting yourself in the place of God or claiming the prerogatives of God biblically is blasphemy. I think, with all respect, they meet that definition. A lot of lovely people out there in that uh, very uh, powerful church, and they do a lot of good things around the world, but in their foundational teachings, there's a cancer. It's unbiblical, and we need to address that. It was prophesied that this would happen. Question number nine. How long would this beast rule? The Bible gives us a time period. Answer. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now, in prophecy, a day equals what? A day is a year in prophecy. Where do you get that? Well, we've given you some examples there. You've got several in the Old Testament. There's one in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. Some religious leaders came to Jesus. They said, you better watch out because Herod's going to get you. He killed John the Baptist. And Jesus responded by saying, go tell that fox that I teach and perform cures and cast out demons today and tomorrow and the third day I will be completed or I'll complete my work. This was six months into Jesus' ministry. He did not preach three more days. He was making a prophecy. He preached three more years. A day is a year in prophecy, okay? So 42 months is 1,260 days. That would mean 1,260 years. A day is a year in prophecy. You'll see several cases of that. Question number 10. What happened to the beast after the 42 months? What did the Bible predict? I saw one of the heads as it was wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and the world wondered after the beast. You know, it received a wound by a sword. What is the sword? The word of God came back into the hands of the people, and they received the wound. People began to fly out of the church into the various Protestant movements. I want you to notice a statement here. The legally recognized supremacy of the Pope began in 538 A.D. when there went into effect a decree of Emperor Justinian making the Bishop of Rome, or the Pope, head over the churches, the definer of doctrine and corrector of heretics. You see, what happened was Justinian, the Roman Emperor, he basically left town and he said the Bishop of Rome is now the head of the church. If you read your Bible, where did they have the councils? In Rome or Jerusalem? You read in Acts, the head of the church, the center of the church council was Jerusalem. They moved it to Rome where they could keep their hands on it. And it's sort of getting mixed up in the government during that time. 538 this happened. An army was given to the church to punish people that did not go along with the church. Now, did Jesus ever use those tactics to correct heretics by force? No, he said, whosoever will. Let people turned away from Jesus. He didn't hurl rocks at them. He invites us to come. Oh, Vigilus ascended the papal chair in 538 A.D. under the military protection of Basilius. History of the Christian Church, Volume 3, page 327. That's 42 months, 1260 years. Okay? 
He says, I've given you a day for a year in Ezekiel 4.6. If we start in 538 A.D., if we go 1,260 years, what does that come to? 1798. What happened in 1798? A little corporal by the name of Napoleon was sweeping over the world with his armies. His general, Berthier, went into Rome. They had had a lot of animosity with the church. And the aged pontiff was taken into custody. The church lost its power over the European continent at that time. You've got it here in the history writings. In 1798, he, Berthier, made his entrance into Rome. He abolished the papal government and established a secular one. Encyclopedia Americana, 1941. Now, friends, have any of you ever played chess? I used to play hours of chess, so I'd even dream about it. What are the two pieces on the right and the left of the king and the queen? The bishop. You know why? From 538 to 1798, the Roman Catholic Church was pretty much the ruling power in Europe. They received a deadly wound when the, the Pope was dethroned then in 1798. Up to that time, all of the reigning monarchs in Europe had representatives of the church they had to answer to. That's why Henry VIII had such a fit when the church would not condone one of his divorces and getting remarried. He separated and said, well, I'll start my own church because all these monarchs used to have to answer to the church. It's interesting, I think, now that many of these churches that broke away are reuniting now. Have you been reading the headlines? You can read this in a newspaper clipping. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. In affixing autographs to the memorable document, healing the wound. This is the San Francisco Chronicle, uses the very words, February 1929. Healing the wound, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. Mussolini gave them back their autonomy again during this time. The wound was healed. The Roman Catholic Church became an independent nation. Once again, they have ambassadors from the world that answer to them. We have an ambassador that goes to the Vatican. Isn't that strange that a government ambassador will go to a church? That ought to tell you it's more than a church. And we'll say more about that. The United Nations convenes to be addressed by the Pope. You think we could all write them and they'd let me talk to them? I don't think so. Okay. You can see, if you look in the headlines, that something very striking has been happening. You know, America started out as a Protestant country. There's been a merging now. You've read about how intimately Ronald Reagan worked with the Pope to bring down communism. You've seen those articles, and that's all out in the open now. It's a very powerful religious entity. It also happens to be the number one holder of silver in the world. They hold more priceless relics and objects a very wealthy institution, even though many of their people serve God in great poverty. And their, their priests and the nuns do a lot of humanitarian work and the self-denial, and we appreciate that. But the institution itself is fabulously wealthy. I've been to Rome, and you walk through the corridors of St. Peter's Basilica, and you will be impressed. It says that he would receive a deadly wound, and the deadly wound would be healed. You know, I believe in something called dual application of prophecy. I think it's worthy of mention that Pope John Paul II, a lovely man, I'm not saying anything about the individual, seems to be a very charismatic, sincere man, he received a deadly wound during an assassination attempt. He was in critical condition. When he was healed and he was restored to health, he said, I have been resurrected. 
And so I think sometimes God is trying to get our attention. He is without question the most widely traveled pope in the history of the church. Matter of fact, he is the most widely traveled religious leader in the history of our planet. And you shouldn't be surprised that prophecy addresses this issue. I think I told you in one of my earlier presentations during my testimony that my father uh, had a private audience with the pope uh, because he was helping the pope with some of his celebrations for the year 2000 or or made an offering, I don't know exactly what facilitated it, but uh, he said he was a lovely, charismatic man. My father said he was going to say something, when he got to him he was speechless because he was overwhelmed with the, the, the aura that the man seemed to have around him. So he may be a wonderful man. What we're talking here about is biblical truth, am I right? Are the teachings biblical? And we're going to find out that they are not. It tells us that this is a, number 11, is the beast a religious power? Well, we already know this is a redundant question. In Revelation, it says it has to do with worship. It says, and it causes as many, Revelation 13, verse 15, cause that as many as would not worship, the image of the beast should be killed. If you do not worship the way you're being told to worship, there's a death decree. The first murder in the Bible, friends, don't miss this, please. I want to shout it from the mountaintop so people will get the picture. Cain and Abel both claim to worship the same God. They worship differently. One did it according to God's commands. One did it his own way. The one who was doing it his own way killed his brother. The issue was who, how, and when you worship. The thing, the final issue is going to revolve around the same criteria. It's going to be who, when, and how you worship. Are you going to do it God's way, God's day, or are you going to follow the crowd and go with man-made law, man-made worship, man-made religion. The issue is, who is your God? The reason there's sin in the world today is because the devil said to Eve, you don't need to take God seriously. He didn't really mean what he said. We've all found out, yes, he did mean what he said. Amen? God wants us to not only be hearers, but doers of the word. They are an entity that involves worship. You've got a picture here of several charismatic Catholics. The charismatic movement has swept now into the Catholic Church, as well as many of the mainline Orthodox and Protestant churches. It's sort of the spiritual glue that's welding many denominations together. Number 12, what does the beast do to the saints? We find out that it's a persecuting power. And some of these things are hard for us to consider, but you'd be surprised how things can change very quickly in the scope of prophetic history. And it says, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Furthermore, Jesus said, now this is not in your lesson, yes, the time is coming, John 16, 2, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he is offering God service. You getting the picture, friends? When Paul was killing Christians, he thought he was serving God. Very sincere. But he was doing it the wrong way. And this is going to happen again. These same things right now, friends, we are right on the threshold of these events. The final events are about to transpire. You look back into the history of the church, and it's very clear that the Catholic Church was a persecuting power. If you did not go along with the laws and the decrees, you could be burnt at the stake. Sometimes women were buried alive. You could be tortured by the inquisitors. I'm not being derogatory, friends. I've been to Europe. All you've got to do is go travel and you can see this. It's in the history books. Matter of fact, I respect Pope John Paul II. 
He's the first pope in history who has admitted the church has been guilty of wrongly persecuting people. And one of the things he plans on doing to inaugurate the millennium is to make a pilgrimage and to apologize to the world. How many of you remember reading that? They've admitted that now, which is a step forward because in the past they claimed infallibility. One historian, Edward Leakey, wrote that the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. All you've got to do is read the history books and the numbers range somewhere between 50 and 70 million people killed by the church during the Dark Ages. And you know, this is not fanatical, wild speculation. Go to Europe. Ask if you can visit some of the torture chambers. They'll hand you brochures, they take you on tours, they take you in the dungeons, they show you where the church, the bottom of the churches, they've got torture chambers where they tortured people who did not go along. They called them heretics. They believe, they claim they had that right. I don't think in their writings they've ever, really, they've ever officially renounced that they had the right to persecute and torture and kill heretics. Now we'll get to the part you're wondering about. What is the mystery number that identifies the beast? Now for one thing, the Bible never says the mark of the beast is 666. Are you aware of that? You've all seen these cartoons where people got 666 in their forehead and paintings and movies. It never says that. It says the number helps us identify the man. It's the number of a man. It never says the number is 666 in the mark. We'll talk about that tomorrow night. It says in Revelation 13, 18, his number is 600, three score and six. Now, you maybe remember that on special occasions, the popes used to wear this triple-tiered hat mitre, they called it. It was called the fish hat, because it, it looked like a fish's mouth open when they turned sideways. And that's because, if you ask the church, he claims to be, the pope claims to be the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth, and the Lord of purgatory. Those are the three reasons for the three tiers. There is an emblem on the hat of the pope. You know how the high priest had a gold medallion that said, holiness to the Lord. On the Pope's mitre, there's also, and Pope John Paul, he doesn't, the second, he doesn't like to wear it. I don't know if it's because it's cumbersome and heavy, but when he was inaugurated, he did not wear it. It still is in the treasures and the relics of the Vatican. The next Pope may choose to wear it when he's inaugurated, I don't know. But they have it, and the official title that's on the top of that mitre has a writing on it. What are the letters that are on the Pope's crown? The letters on the Pope's crown are these. This is from their own writings. Vicarious Philae Dei which is Latin for Vicar of the Son of God. Now, Vicar means representative. In my Bible, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is the representative of God, Jesus said. He said, I leave and I'm going to send my representative, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. When you take the Roman numerals, we all remember Roman numerology from our days in school. Each Roman numeral, each Roman letter, not each one, but many Roman letters had a numerical value. You remember, V equals what? Five. And C, for century, equals 100. And uh, I equals 1. Some had no value. U is the same as V. Vicarious is spelt with a V, I-V-S. And so it's a V also. You add them up, and it comes to what? The title above the crown of the Pope adds up to 666. You know what I think is interesting, friends? When Jesus died on the cross, there was a sign above his head that said, This is the King of the Jews. In Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. 
I understand that not only is it true in Latin, but in Hebrew and Greek, that title translated adds up to 666. I don't think there's any question about, and it's not saying the Pope is the beast. I'm not saying that the Pope is a monster. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that that institution represents the beast of, of Revelation chapter 13. And the number of the man and the position he holds is unbiblical. I want to read some things to you that uh, I've saved for the end, just to make sure I survive this long. I may not survive this, but I want to be clean of your blood. The Bible teaches. Do you believe the Bible? Amen. The Bible teaches that we are not to bow down to statues. The Catholic Church, and that's Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, the Roman Catholic Church says it is permissible to bow down to statues. It's not an ancient tradition, but a medieval tradition. The Bible teaches that all have sinned except Jesus. Isn't that right? All have sinned except Christ. Romans 3, 10 through 12, Hebrews 4, 15, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was sinless. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2, 5, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary is co-mediator with Christ, and we can go to Christ through her. I'm just telling you, friends, there's things that are inconsistent with the Bible. The Bible teaches that Christ offered his sacrifice on the cross once for all. Hebrews 7, verse 27 28. Hebrews 10, 10. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the priest actually sacrifices Christ on the altar every time he offers Mass. The Bible teaches that all Christians are saints and priests. Ephesians 1, 1. 1 Peter 2, 9. The Roman Catholic Church says that saints and priests are a special caste within the Christian community. The Bible teaches that all Christians should know that they have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 The Roman Catholic Church teaches that all Christians cannot and should not know they have eternal life. The Bible teaches us to call no religious father, no religious leader, our father. Matthew 23.9 The Roman Catholic Church teaches that that's insignificant. It's appropriate to call priests and pope father. The teachings of purgatory, limbo, prayers for the dead are nowhere in scriptures, but they are clearly relics of paganism that found their way into the church when it commingled with the Roman religion and the Roman Empire. There are a lot of spiritual, godly people in the Roman Catholic Church that don't understand the importance of going by the Bible and not following ancient or popular tradition. My appeal, friends, is that we follow Christ all the way. What do you say? Would you like to hear something shocking? This is a quote from a pope who did not like what was happening to the church. Pope Gregory the Great, 540 to 604. He was the last of the four original doctors of the church. He became known as Saint Gregory. At the end of the ancient church period, he said that such a church teaching came from Antichrist. He wrote, I confidently affirm that whoever calls himself the universal bishop or desires to be so called is in his pride a forerunner of Antichrist. Here you've got one of the greatest popes calling the position of the Pope Antichrist. They fought it themselves among themselves for centuries, and it was in prophecy. And I hope that you who are watching and you who are listening here will pray sincerely, and you'll make a decision to follow God's word and to follow Jesus all the way. Amen. Tonight we've heard some heavy things. I don't want to close without asking the final appeal question. Are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads? Even though you may lose your friends, you may lose your job, you may lose your life like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are you willing to follow him? Do you love him that much? 
He's shown how much he loves you, friends. He laid down his life for you. And it's my sincere prayer that you will trust him with your lives now. Do you believe you can follow him? Can you trust him? You can't follow a multitude because the multitude's on the wrong road. You must make your decision to follow Christ. He is the word. He is the truth that will set you free. Is that your decision, friends, that you want to follow him? Loving Lord, we are so thankful for the truth we find in your word and the clarity that we see there. We are thankful for the prophecies that have opened to us the future so that we do not need to be among the blind leading the blind. Lord, I pray for each of these people who are here and those who are watching that you will activate the Holy Spirit in their lives, that he will guide them, that he will plead with them to surrender all to Christ and place it on the altar, that they might know that they can trust him with their souls for eternity. Lord, help us to have the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to follow Christ, even if it means he leads us into the furnace, that we might obey you, Lord. Be doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.